The main point of, of, of this evening's sermon is that Jesus experienced the full displeasure of God so that you could have eternal pleasure in God. Jesus experienced the full displeasure of God so that you could have eternal pleasure in God. Our text is going to be Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 41. So I'm going to read the passage and then pray and then we'll spend a few minutes unpacking it. This is the word of the Lord. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. And I thank you for the, uh, just the amazing truth, the amazing reality that is relayed to us in this passage of Scripture that we just read. Please give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, the significance of what we're looking at, of what we're hearing with our ears, of what took place on that cross. And I pray, God, that your people would come that you would give them the strength to comprehend how great your love is, though it surpasses knowledge. And I pray for anyone here that does not know you, that's not born again, that today they would come face to face with the God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who's slow to anger, and that they would surrender their life to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to unpack... that statement that I just gave you, Jesus experienced the full displeasure of God so that you could have eternal pleasure in God. I want to unpack that by diving in deeper to this passage of Scripture. So, the passage starts out by telling us that Jesus was nailed to the cross at the third hour, uh, or around 9 a.m., because uh, the, they counted hours by when the day started uh, which was 6 a.m. Is, was zero hour. That's when the day started. So the third hour was 9 a.m. And then we're told that about noon, the sky darkened, became completely black. And this, this wasn't a coincidental solar eclipse. This was a supernatural sign. In Scripture, darkness represents lament and God's judgment. And I think that both are in view here. In, in Amos chapter 8, The prophets spoke about the coming day of judgment upon Israel for their sin. I want you to listen to Amos chapter 8, verses 9 to 10. 
says, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. So, This is a prophecy of tremendous lament in response to the terrible wrath of God towards the sin of His people. When Amos wrote, the people of God had been trampling the poor and indulging in all manner of sin while going through the, the motions of worship. God told them that if they did not repent, that a bitter day of mourning would come. And amazingly, however... At the cross, God's fierce wrath was poured out, but not on His rebellious son Israel. Instead, it was poured out on His obedient son, Jesus. The only son being mourned here is the Son of God, even though it's sinful humanity who deserves to have our lives cut off, as Amos chapter 8 says. The darkness at the cross also calls to mind God's judgment upon the Egyptians and the death of the firstborn when he was delivering the people of Israel at Passover. That that judgment at Passover was preceded by three days of darkness in the ninth plague. In the same way, the death of God's firstborn son, Jesus, is preceded by three hours of darkness. After three days of darkness, the Passover lamb was slaughtered. After three hours of darkness, the Lamb of God will breathe his last. So what this darkness is intended to communicate in this passage is that the awful judgment of God is being poured out on the cross. In response, Jesus cries out by reciting Psalm chapter 22 verse 1. He says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" The psalm is is a cry to God for help, almost like a, a bewildered cry of despair to God asking, oh God, why are you not intervening as I suffer unjustly at the hands of wicked men? The psalm was written by David, and David truly felt abandoned by God in that moment. But of course, we know that God did not actually abandon David. And even David goes on to express confidence that God will come to his aid and vindicate him by the end of the psalm. So though this psalm was written by David, the writers of the New Testament clearly saw its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And Jesus certainly identified with this psalm because he directly quotes it from the cross. The difference is that while David was not forsaken by God, in a very real sense, Jesus was. Jesus has coexisted in perfect, loving fellowship with the Father from all eternity. In his divine nature. And when the Word became flesh, he walked in perfect fellowship with the Father in his humanity throughout his 33 years on earth. He never sinned and he walked in perfect obedience. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 29, I always do what pleases the Father, always. But there was one more act of obedience that the Father required of the Son and that the Son willingly obeyed, though it was painful beyond imagination. 
Jesus willingly went to the cross to endure the righteous judgment and wrath of God towards sinners. He experienced a real God-forsakenness as the sins of the entire world were placed upon Him on the cross. 1 Peter says that He Himself bore our sin in His body on the tree. On the cross, Jesus experienced the Father as His enemy and His judge, not as His Father. It's this God-forsakenness, this despair that caused Him to sweat drops of blood as He agonized the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane. And just like Psalm 22 ends with a confident hope of vindication, Jesus also recognized that He too would be vindicated. He told His disciples over and over leading up to this event that he, He would say, the Son of Man must suffer and be killed, but on the third day He will rise again. And that's exactly what happened. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, having accomplished with perfect obedience all that the Father sent Him to accomplish. The grave could not hold Him because He had no sins of His own to pay for. Once He had paid for our sins in full, there was nothing to keep Him in the grave. But in this moment on the cross... As Jesus cried out with a loud voice, He really and truly was experiencing the full displeasure of God towards sin. Jesus was treated like we deserve to be treated on the cross. He was treated as a sinner. So what does this scene of Christ upon the cross teach us about ourselves and God? I think that it teaches us that Your sin is far worse than you realize. And that God's love is far greater than you realize. I think when we look at the cross, those are two things that, that are crystal clear. The bloody cross is a graphic portrait of the just wrath of God towards sin. It's not a pretty scene. And think about it. God created you in His image to worship Him. And He blessed you with all that you need and more. Food, shelter, family, friends. And you declared war on Him. We all did. The universe centers around God as the King. And He created us to orient our lives around Him as we depend upon Him and delight in Him. But instead, we've risen up in rebellion against Him and put ourselves at the center of the universe and rejected God's law. Romans chapter 1 describes how sinful humanity has traded the truth about God for a lie to worship and serve the things that God has created rather than the Creator Himself. It's an adulterous act of betrayal on the part of every single person. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, myself included. Every single one of us. Our sin is heinous and the wages for our sin is death and eternal separation from God. God would be perfectly just in condemning us to hell forever. The king has every right to put down this unprovoked rebellion. But in his abundant love and mercy, God put Christ forward in our place. For a brief period on the cross, Jesus experienced a God-forsakenness that if you are in Christ, you will never experience. You'll never experience that. But... Unbelievers 
will experience it forever, without end. This is, this is why Jesus sweat drops of blood in the garden the night before, because He saw with crystal clarity what men often like to scoff about. People like to joke about going to hell and, and talking lightly about it, but if we could see being an object of God's wrath with the clarity that Jesus saw it in the Garden of Gethsemane, we would shudder and never joke about it. Jesus understood the horror, the hopelessness, and the despair of facing the wrath of God. And He experienced this God-forsakenness. For a brief period of time. But this hopeless agony will stretch on for eternity for those who reject the gospel. Revelation 14.11 says this. of, of, Of unbelievers, those who reject the gospel. That the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image. Now why am I pressing on this point? Why am I pressing? Maybe you feel a little bit uncomfortable right now. And that's partly by design. That's partly intentional. It's also partly because we need to see it, because it's true, because it's right here in the text. There's a reason that this bloody scene is taking place on the cross. There's a reason that Jesus was sweating drops of blood in Gethsemane. There's a reason that He's crying out in despair, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's not just because of the physical pain. Jesus was not a wuss. I'm pressing on this point because, first, I want any non-believer here to understand the danger that you are in, and I want you to flee to Christ. And I want Christians to understand the danger that non-believers are in as well so that we can get a sense of urgency. But I also press this point to help you see just how great an act of love Christ's death on the cross truly was. You see, the horror of the cross when we don't turn away from it, it actually accentuates the love of God. God chose to pour out this awful, horrifying judgment upon His obedient Son instead of you. And you did nothing to deserve that. Nothing. The only thing we can give to God is our filthy, messy sin. That's all we have to offer. We have Nothing else to offer Him. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross. I cling. Jesus did not die for people who prove themselves worthy of receiving this gift. He died for sinners who have absolutely nothing to offer God except for our sin. Jesus endured the awful reality of God forsakenness so that you never have to. We said earlier that Jesus experienced or that, that, that Jesus experienced the full displeasure of God so that you could have eternal pleasure in God. You see, it's it's even better. Not only did Jesus take the punishment that you and I deserve, but the cross accomplishes something. It accomplishes many things. But the one thing I want to highlight tonight is that is that the cross has enabled us to be united to God. We're able to be reconciled to God. In verses 37 to 39, Mark highlights the result of Jesus' death. Look at it again. He says, 
Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And what's the first thing that happens after Jesus breathes his last? He says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. So what Mark immediately highlights is the tearing of the curtain in the temple. What's that all about? The temple was the center of worship for God's people, the Israelites. There was a place called the Holy of Holies in the innermost part of the temple. And within this room was the Ark of the Covenant and the place where God's manifest presence dwelt. And the veil was there as a visible representation of the separation between God and sinful man. You couldn't walk into the Holy of Holies without dropping dead. A sinful man can't just go waltz into the presence of God because God is perfectly holy. For a sinful man to look upon a holy God would mean instant death. That's why every time in the Bible someone has an encounter with God, they fall on their face in fear. One of the ones that might come to your mind is Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 where he encounters the Lord and he sees the train of his robe filling the temple and what does he do? He, he cries out, woe is me, I am undone from a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. Isaiah understood that to be a really dangerous thing and he was terrified. So only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies once a year, and he had to be from the tribe of Levi, and he had to offer sacrifices for his own sins and the sin of Israel. Sacrifices had to be offered again and again for the sins of the people in Israel. So the tearing of the veil in the temple then has massive implications. It not only means that the old sacrificial system with worship at the temple is obsolete, but it means that direct access to God is now offered through Christ. There's no longer a need for sacrifices for sin because Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice. So the sacrificial system is over and gone. Our sin debt was infinite, so it required an infinitely valuable sacrifice. And Jesus' life is infinitely valuable. And so His death satisfied our debt. So it's through Jesus' blood that we are now able, by faith, to come to God. Let me read you Hebrews 10, 19-22. This is such an amazing passage in light of the, tear, the tearing of the, of the curtain in the temple. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the high priest used to pass through the curtain in the temple, the physical curtain in the temple, with fear and trembling after offering up many animals as a sacrifice for sins. But now we can enter God's presence with confidence through faith in Jesus' blood that was shed for us. Do you notice how the author of Hebrews compares the curtain in the temple to Christ's body, to His flesh? 
used to be able to, you used to have to enter the Holy of Holies, which was a physical geographical place through a physical curtain. The author of Hebrews is saying, now we enter by faith through the shed blood of Christ into the presence of God. So because of this, anyone can be reconciled to God by faith, even Gentiles like the Roman centurion or you and me. So what do you need to do? Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Believe that He suffered and died for your sin. Believe that He rose from the dead. Then leave your old life behind and follow Him. And you will be saved. Now, the implications for believers are massive. If, if you are a Christian, I want you to understand and don't just... just Breeze past this this weekend. Your sins have been paid for. Your sins have been paid for. Past, present, and future. There is no blood that needs to be shed. There's no works that need to be performed to gain an audience with God. There's no prayers that need to be recited or rituals that need to be observed. Your sin has been finally and fully paid for, and there is nothing that comes between you and God. Nothing. You can come to Him, Hebrews says, with full assurance of faith, not based on your work, but on the finished work of Christ on the cross. Full assurance. No doubting. You have the freedom to do that because of what Christ has done. Those who trust in Jesus will never be forsaken by God. There will never come a time where God will tire of putting up with you because all of His anger towards your sin was exhausted at the cross. God is never going to go, all right, that's the last straw. I told you, if you gave into that sin one more time, I was through with you. Now I'm furious with you and I'm going to vent all of my anger. No. He vented all of His anger. All of His anger, His righteous wrath towards your sin and my sin was spent on Christ on the cross. God is not angry with you, believer, and He never will be. You may feel at times like God has forsaken you, but the gospel is the final word that says He has not and He will not. And because He is just, He cannot. It it would be unjust for God to punish a Christian for sin because Christ was already punished for our sin. So not only is it not possible for God to punish you for your sin, He has no desire to. Christ died for you because in love God predestined you for adoption as a son. Because He loves you. He didn't save you begrudgingly. He did it. It was His idea to save you. It was His idea. Christ died for you. Man, go read Ephesians 1 tonight or tomorrow morning. It's just astounding that God from start to finish did this for us. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that Christ died for you so that in the coming ages, God could shower the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness upon you. God just wanted to do that because it just brings Him glory. (laughs) That's amazing. He wanted to do that for sinners. Are you guys excited about that? Yeah, we should be. That's very good news. I know you're awake. I know. Christ died for you so that you could be forever. Hear these words from 1 Thessalonians Chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. I love, it's one of my favorite passages. It says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. (laughs) Amazing. You are not destined for wrath. You are loved. You are forgiven. So extinguish the fiery darts of Satan's accusation with the shield of faith in Jesus Christ. Look to the cross and see your Savior dying for you. Look to the torn veil. Look to the Gentile centurion who oversaw the most unjust murder ever committed, having the honor of being the first believer ever after Jesus dies. Like, isn't that amazing that like, this Gentile centurion who's standing there overseeing this incredibly cruel, unjust act is the guy that gets the privilege of being the first believer after Jesus dies on the cross? I mean, that's because God is gracious. Our, our mission as a church, many of you know, is to glorify God by helping people know Jesus and make Him known in D.C. and around the world. It's knowing Jesus that fuels us to make Him known, though. The reason I want to press on the love of God and I'm praying that you will come to understand the the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love for you is because that's what changes us. That's what fuels obedience. That's what fuels a life laid down for the sake of the gospel. Not rote obedience or not fearful, trembling obedience that hopefully if I do enough good things then God will accept me. No. It's knowing God's love for you that enables you to love Him with all of your heart and your neighbor as yourself. If we try to live for Jesus out of a sense of duty or obligation, it will turn into stale worship. We live for Jesus and we make Him known because we can't contain to ourselves just how wonderful and glorious He is. Because we've tasted and seen for ourselves just how great the love of God is. My prayer is that you will truly taste and see God's love as you gaze at the cross this weekend. We're going to respond by taking some time to pray. I'm going to put some prayer prompts on the screen, and I want you to just take a few minutes to pray on your own. If you need to pray with someone or to talk to someone about becoming a follower of Jesus, we will have prayer counselors up front right after the service. So when the service dismisses, we'll have some refreshments downstairs. But if you need to pray with someone or talk to someone, myself and Thomas and a few others will be up here. Just please come and talk to us. But what I want to do is just take a few moments and you can just pray, um, you know, in your seat with yourself. Or if you came with somebody and you want to pray together, that's more than fine. And uh, just Ephesians 3.18, just kind of basing Uh, our, Our time of prayer off that, where Paul says, I want to read it again, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So three things I want you to, to spend some time doing. First, confess any sin in your life to God that the Holy Spirit is bringing to life light right now. Knowing that because of the blood of Jesus, God is not going to smash you with a hammer if you bring that sin to the light. No, no. First John says he's faithful and just to forgive our sin. Like This is a good, loving, gentle Savior who invites you to come and like just be real about your sin in your life. And he's going to forgive it if you do that. What an offer. What an offer. Don't try to hide your sin. That's useless anyways because he sees it anyways. 
Like, you can't hide things from God. So just take this time to confess your sins. Secondly, praise and thank God for loving you so much that he delivered up his son Jesus to die on the cross in your place. Let's just spend some time praising God. And then lastly, ask God to give you an increased assurance of his love for you. And maybe also pray for someone else that you know who needs the assurance of God's love for them.